Welcome back to Geek Life, the indie comics podcast on Pandamanga.com. I'm your host, JP. As always with me are my fearless co-hosts, Marcus. I'm like the sandy fart of the podcast community. And Joe. So much like the bat signal, Aquaman has a signal, but it's comprised of just dumping 50 pounds of fish food into the bay. <laughs> and back with us after a rather long hiatus, the one, the only, the admin. Hello, hello. It's been long enough they don't have something witty to say. Wah, wah, wah. We invited her back on specifically today because the admin and I are really huge HP Lovecraft fans. Actually, admin showed me this really great podcast called HP Podcraft, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But ever since then, it's just been down a deep, dark hole of weird fiction awesome. And so... If you guys remember, a couple of podcasts ago, we talked about the excellent comic book that was actually an iPhone app, or an iOS app, DOS, DOS. about Petter DOS. And this was from John Jampley. And one of John's friends actually got a hold of us and shared with us this really exciting project that he did. And it is called Pikmin's Model. Not after the Nintendo character. No, no. That would be really messed yeah, up. Yeah, very different. <laughs> very different. So Pikmin's Model is a HP Lovecraft short story. It's about, about 10 pages long. Not real big, right? And John's friend, Kim Holm, got a hold of me and shared with me his excellent work. It's about 114 pages, exactly. So about, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's actually available for free online. If you guys want to go to freecomics.no, you can read it right there. You can also purchase it on Indie Planet. You can just search on the Indie Planet search for Pikmin's Model, Kim Holm. And we'll also, of course, put links to all this in the show notes. But... This is a really interesting work because normally we talk about comic books that are, you know, written and illustrated by either a pair of people or a single person, but rarely is it the writing is basically pulled from somebody who is, I guess at this point, a very famous writer and mm -hmm. is actually long dead. And so it's an interesting kind of take on things. It's definitely new for us. But as soon as he said that he was adapting a Lovecraft short story, I was immediately interested. And so as soon as I opened up the PDF, I, my, my brains exploded out of my ears because not only is it Lovecraft, but the art is amazing. And I've got a ton to say about the art. Lots and lots of notes. So but first, why don't we talk a little bit about who Kim is? Kim Holm is a cartoonist from Bergen, Norway. His comics have been published in various Norwegian and international publications and online. Sketches drawn live during metal concerts have garnered him praise and attention from Germany to India and has led to critically acclaimed album work for, and I'm not going to be able to pronounce this right, so just, just bear with me, Solstafir, Ireland, and other extreme bands. Kim started picturing how he would adapt Lovecraft's generally unadaptable work back in the late 90s, chose Pickman's model as his first story, and failed miserably. In 2007, he had another false start, but managed to break the text down in a reasonable way. So when Holm restarted in 2009, it was on firmer ground. Now, three and a half years of work later, the 110-page volume might be slim, but is Holm's vision finally on paper? Now, before we get into the story, why don't we talk a little bit about who H.P. Lovecraft is? Now, those of you that listen to the podcast probably are familiar with him, but some people are not. There's sort of a, a small, incredibly devout group of people that like Lovecraft, and it's growing and it's actually becoming more and more popular, especially in the geek community. But for a very long time, there was really just a small group of devotees that really love his work and were spreading it around. And actually, 
our good friend Admin was one of them. And so why don't we why don't we have you tell us a little bit about who he is? Teach me something. I don't know anything about HP Lovecraft. Oh, you are in for a treat. This dude, <laughs> first of all, you actually are a fan of HP Lovecraft and you know a lot about his stories. It's all just that I you don't realize that, it. All I know is Cthulhu. That's that's my it, only It goes so far beyond that. Uh, you got to keep in mind that Lovecraft is pretty much the grandfather of all things sci-fi. So, who is HP Lovecraft? He was actually born in 1890, so he, he, he's been around for a really long time, and he died in 1937. He died really young. I'm glad young. you added that second part, because it'd be like, he lived forever. <laughs> he's, he's still alive. Well, technically speaking, he yeah, has lived on forever. No. Actually, he died of stomach cancer at a pretty young age, which That's sucked really, really bad. Really sad. Um, I always wonder what he could have achieved if he had lived long enough to see his work become successful. Actually, a lot of people, their biggest complaints about Lovecraft, especially those that are you know, have very fine literary tastes, feel that some of his stuff has sort of shades of amateurishness to it, you know? He's fucking young! But, but, but yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Like, people really, he's very celebrated, but at the same time, died very young and didn't really get to develop his craft to any kind of a pinnacle. He was still working his way up that. Mm -hmm. And so... Even what he's put out already is incredibly promising and really brilliant, but is a little rough around the edges as far as like, which is, you know, kind of a problem because people like to say, you know, he's a master of this or blah, blah, blah. And, and in many ways he really was, but there was most definitely room for improvement for him. And that's one of the reasons why it's so sad that we lost him so young because he is really brilliant and very gifted and was such a loss. We would have loved to see where he went. So anyway, yeah. go ahead. Yeah, just to kind of round off, you know, he's an American author, which is great because we can take credit for him. Woot. <laughs> um, and as we were talking about, he became famous after he had died. And he's best known for his horror fiction, or as it was called back when he was actually working, Weird Tales. So if anybody's familiar with the paranormal or that sort of thing, they've probably heard of Weird Tales magazine. And that's the origin of that term, Weird Which Tales. Which is still going on today. Right. But it, it's kind of evolved out into different categories like horror and sci-fi were all born out of Weird Tales. Yeah. The sort of what they often call cosmic terror. Mm -hmm. Pigs have weird tales. <laughs> You have won. Yes, that is true. Uh, so those type of magazines, the Weird Tale magazines, were known as pulp magazines. And that was where he mainly made what little money he did. He actually ended up dying in poverty, which was really unfortunate. And there were a lot of references, and you could still find them occasionally, of him being so poor that he would actually write his story on, like, coupons and little magazine articles in right, any blank right. space that he could because he couldn't afford paper. And here we are now where most of the really creative, scary stuff, like the horror genre and the sci-fi genre, is coming from this one guy who couldn't even afford stuff to write on. Yeah, so it's a perfect example of someone who was underappreciated in his time and now, in the fullness of time, has really seen the kind of love and appreciation that he really deserved. Has he seen the love craft? Can we fire deserves? him? <laughs> <laughs> so, so... Admin, why don't you explain a little bit more about Lovecraft? I know that you're quite a fan. So beyond the, just the nuts and bolts of who he was and where he's from. So, right. Yeah. A lot of people I come across, if I say, hey, you know, do you like Lovecraft? Very often they'll say, oh, I've kind of heard of the name. That's like that Cthulhu guy, right? I really don't know anything about his work. As a matter of fact. We... I just said that. Yeah. So. You're welcome for a perfect example. Yeah, I know. Segways <laughs> are perfect. So. In reality, you do know Lovecraft. You do know his work because, like I mentioned, he was really the grandfather of the sci-fi and horror genres. Ideas about creatures from another dimension that are so far beyond our comprehension as measly humans. That's his work. 
So anything- I mean, talking about in the comics realm, that has been drawn on heavily. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, even specific references to Lovecraft, but think about all the alternate universe, parallel universe sort of stuff. Like, a lot of that sprouts from this seed. Pretty much anything. If you see a scene where some creature is tearing through a dimension. Especially if there's tentacles. He was always about the tentacles. There, there was a lot of the tentacle ancient gods always have tentacles for some reason. Well, because they're terrifying. They are cosmically terrifying. I can't help but wonder what he would have taken from the Japanese tentacle culture. <laughs> Can you imagine? Mm, yes, that would have or been Or did the Japanese tentacle culture come from him? It's very likely. So most of the stuff that you see in popular culture that relates to sci-fi or horror really has come from him. and he, Or at least is in some way influenced by it. Well, you know, yeah, yeah. Some, yeah. Obviously, he's been dead longer than the genre has been in existence at this point. So right. I think that his fans often like to give, I guess, like to phrase the uh, importance of his work in a little bit intense terms and mm. i think it it, it uh, frustrates some people because i feel like he didn't come up with that but he has had a huge influence on the development of that art style and the development of those story types and so much of what he really pioneered has become kind of the bedrock of a lot of those kind of tales and actually now that we're talking about the stuff that he created it, it's interesting to note that his creations have expanded out beyond just story ideas mm. for example Lovecraft was the one who created the Necronomicon. That was him. And then Crowley came along and actually wrote out an actual book. But the Necronomicon was specifically developed in Lovecraft stories. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And the Necronomicon is something that people probably would recognize, even though they have no idea who Lovecraft is. Right. They probably yeah. view it as an actual historical book, the Book of the Dead. But, I mean, it is real now, but it's because it originally came in a Lovecraft story. Yeah, written by the Mad Arab, right? Yep, written yeah. by the Mad Arab. And the thing that's interesting about Lovecraft stories is that you get the sense that many of the stories take place in the same universe. Even mm -hmm. though a lot of them take place, many of them, I would say almost all of them take place in New England, our world, mm -hmm. this, right. this world, right? Uh, although lots of things from other worlds are often mm -hmm. involved. But a lot of things take place in our world, a lot of his stories and so it allows him to have running themes of these historical artifacts and books and stories and characters that were involved in the creation of these ancient, arcane, and often sort of evil and dark artifacts. They are a reoccurring theme. You know, the, the Necronomicon shows up several times. And let's know. not forget the famous Arkham City. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He was the first one to reference it. Yep. He's a, he made that up. Yep. Mm -hmm. yep. One of my favorite little factoids about him, though. Is that he died just shortly after Simon and Schuster printed the first Superman comic? <laughs> Very interesting. Like months after. It's crazy. Yeah, horror fully developed, and then soup as superheroes came on, it killed them. <laughs> <laughs> Any other thoughts about Lovecraft before we move forward? God, there's so many. That's the problem. But I think that's a pretty good primer. It's a pretty good bite. Yeah. So, so now you know who he is, and that the the story, the writing, comes from really high pedigree, and how much giant steel balls Kim must have for tackling this kind of a project. You know, giant in the description, <laughs> in the description, talking about Kim's work moving through and creating this project, it said the often unadaptable. And that's very true. There's a lot of adaptations of his work, but they're mostly audio dramas or film or something mm -hmm. like that. But this, it, not a whole, I mean, there are some comics, but they're Lovecraftian. They're not his yeah. story. You know, there are some, again, yeah. but 
by and large, it's more like something is Lovecraftian instead of an actual adaptation of his work. Yeah, there was there's kind of a running theme in all the work I'm familiar with of his that there's no description of the the awful horror. He always calls it unimaginable or something. The I nameless could, horror. Yeah, the nameless I could, horror. The I could never. Horror, the... I could never explain to you what this is because there aren't words terrifying enough for it. Yeah, yeah. And so that doesn't lend itself well to visual medium. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. There's even he even talks about colors. That the are, color out of space. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That like, does not exist that in our not world. Exist and you can't describe. So good luck drawing yeah, that. Yes. Exactly. All right. So. If you guys are interested, before we move on to the story, if you guys are interested in checking more about who Mr. Lovecraft was and his work, you can go to CthulhuLives.org. That's spelled C-T-H-U-L-H-U-Lives.org. Lots and lots of consonants. That is the H.P. Lovecraft Historical Society, and you can find full production radio dramas, movies, and more. It is a great place to get some of the best Lovecraft media around. Is his stuff all... um... What's the word I'm looking for uh, when you can just write and draw? Public domain. Public, Public domain, domain. Much of it, if not all of it at this point. Uh, yeah, I think... I think I think so, honestly. I mean, you can find... You can pretty much type in his work and find it online. Yeah, I you don't know, even I th- think there's family left anymore to, to be claiming it. I don't think so, no. Actually, that's something that is really useful on this next link that I'd like to give you guys, which is hppodcraft.com, which is an excellent podcast where hosts Chris Lackey and Chad Pfeiffer dig deep into all of Lovecraft's works and some of his history. They've actually moved on from covering his stories because they've covered all of them, mm-hmm. even the ones that he wrote when he was a child, like 12, 11, that sort of age. <laughs> they actually got a hold of those. And they, it's neat to see sort of the beginnings of that way of writing and that thinking. They are now moving on to stories and authors that Lovecraft mentioned in his essay, Supernatural Horror in Literature, in which he shares his opinions on the weird tale and shares some authors and stories that he feels are of note. So it's a really excellent podcast. And I would say most, if not all, of the actual Lovecraft stories are free to download. But after they transitioned away from finishing his stories and moved on to sort of the the HP Podcraft 2.0, where they're digging into people that influenced him, that he admired, that he thought really had something to say in that genre, they actually switched to a pay model. But it's like nothing. It's like two dollars a month or something it's nothing they i think i think every three months they charge you six six dollars and 66 cents because that's the coolest bill ever <laughs> was their joke anyway so it's a really really excellent podcast and a lot of it a lot of it is available for free and they, i believe they have like nine like really excellent readings available for free if you just go to the website it's on the left side of the page and you can just look and there's just nine of them and, and actually the story about cthulhu is there several of the other famous ones are there it's an excellent resource and a really easy way to get a, just a quality look at his work if you have kind of questions about where to start, may I recommend Cool Air? That is one of the most haunting stories and was actually my favorite Lovecraft story going in. And they have a perfect production of it. It's really good. And actually, if you're interested in checking out some of his stories, more than just really quality readings, I would, again, recommend going back to CthulhuLives.org, which is the Lovecraft Historical Society. They have... I want to say Dark Adventure Theater or something like that. I can't remember quite Is what it's called. Is that the thing that we, we listened yes. to one? So that they, was amazing. We're talking, we're talking like old time radio drama. Mm-hmm. We're talking sound effects. Every individual character is voiced by a different person, like music, the whole nine. And you can purchase it. They're very inexpensive. Totally worth it. It's a great night home with, you know, with some friends. When we first found out about it, I jumped over there, purchased it, and then basically invited everybody over. We had some drinks and food and then flipped the lights off and just listened to it. It was really cool. And they actually have some 3D audio so that you have to set up speakers in just a certain way, but then you can actually get sound moving around you as you're listening (laughs) to these stories. It's really neat. So it's just really cool stuff and really neat 
kind of reimaginings and and uh, productions of his work. Anyway, so we spent a lot of time talking about Lovecraft. Why don't we go ahead and take a quick musical break and we'll get into the story of Pickman's Model by H.P. Lovecraft, adapted by Kim Holm. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. Richard Upton Pickman, the greatest artist I have ever known, and the foulest being that ever leaped the bounds of life into the pits of myth and madness. Pickman, painter of the grotesque masterpieces too horrible to imagine, disappears without a trace. His last friend among the living recounts their fateful trip to Pickman's secret studio in Boston's run-down North End. In his classic tale, Pickman's Model, Grandmaster and godfather of the modern horror tale, H.P. Lovecraft, lets his characters delve into the darkest nature of weird art. Welcome back to the Geek Life Podcast. Again, we're talking about the adaptation by Kim Holm of H.P. Lovecraft's Pickman's Model. Now, this story, as we just said, is about this really very talented and incredibly skillful artist living in Boston in 1926. So the story starts with our narrator telling us about his last encounter with Pickman. Now, it seems that, and I'm only assuming that our narrator is like a, a gallery curator or something like that. Yeah. Somebody, from what I gathered, he's like an art manager. Yeah, something like that. Because basically, he continually talks about why he dropped Pickman. That's mm-hmm. sort of the, the preface to the story and why he's telling this story to his yeah. unnamed friend and listener. Who is us. Who is us. Yes. So it seems like they're sitting at, you know, a cafe or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, he continues to, you know, order drink and, and uh, you know, smoke a cigarette and eventually moves on to coffee when things get a little too intense. Mm-hmm. And he's recounting the story of his last encounter with Pikmin and why he, quote, dropped him. And talking about how it wasn't so much that his paintings were really horrible and terrifying, because that was why he was getting dropped left and right from everybody else mm-hmm. that was in our narrator's same sort of position. It was this last encounter he had with him. And the narrator's all hard-boiled. And, yeah, he's tough, man. He's seen yeah. all the different kinds of art. He's not scared of nothing. Yeah. You know, I, the grotesque, the terrible, the horrible. Eh, if it's skillfully made, I appreciate it and I can enjoy it and I can I can show it in my gallery. I'm not, I'm not afraid. I don't shy away from that. I'm not a wuss like those guys, you know, hardened he, on the streets sort of dude. He's seen Geely 17 times. <laughs> <laughs> And so he's basically explaining what's going on with uh, with why, you know, why he decided finally to stop working with Pikmin and also explaining his final encounter before, I guess, shortly after Pikmin passes on. And so or disappears or disappears forever. So what did you guys think of the story? I know that, again, this isn't Kim's story, but it kind of is, you know. And so why don't we talk a little bit about the story and what it is and what we think about it. 
not that we're here to critique one of the great grandmasters of of horror, but you know, it's an interesting story and, and it's sort of our routine. So let's just dive in. What do you guys think of the story of Pickman's model? You know, when the artist described it as being untranslatable, what was the word they used? Unadaptable. Unadaptable. Um, I can see exactly what they mean by mm-hmm. this because mm-hmm. the story describes artwork that is extremely grotesque. Um, it doesn't describe the artwork, but it describes the artwork in the story as being grotesque. Yeah, it basically describes the narrator's reaction to seeing the artwork. Exactly. And the narrator is just at a loss as to why, how to describe it, and then is also sort of conflicted about whether or not he even wants to try. And so the story, I feel like what the story does by not being too overly specific about what's in these the pieces of artwork, it's, uh, it does something that some of my favorite filmmakers do, uh, like the guys that did Paranormal Activity, mm-hmm. they let the imagination fill in the blanks. Mm-hmm. And when you let the audience fill in the blanks, it's much creepier than anything you could ever put on the screen or in, on the page. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really glad, I mean, jumping ahead to the art a little bit, I was really glad that Kim never actually drew exactly. any of the things that were described. Because yeah. there's a fair amount of his work leading up to the undescribable horror mm-hmm. that is described in pretty good detail. And you could imagine someone, an artist, taking a stab at actually drawing those, those images that are described leading up to the one that is not and is too terrible. Mm-hmm. But... Kim, I think, very wisely never shows us anything and lets the words, Lovecraft's words, paint a picture in our mind while he paints a picture of the men observing these works. Very interesting. Anyway, go ahead and continue. Um, The story does a really, really great job of letting um, repetition build up suspense because um, as the friend of the uh, the narrator, the friend of the artist, um, goes further, further down into these catacombs and sees more and more of the artwork, you know that it's leading up to something big. Mm-hmm. You know that it's leading up to this uh, basically horrifying depiction of something. Um, Some kind of revelation. Honestly, yeah. I didn't even know if it was going to be artwork from the artist. I thought it could be something alive or, I don't know, something far more terrifying than anything anyone could put on a canvas. Yeah. But you don't know what it is, you know, and it lets it lets you build up that suspense with every level he goes down to. And it gets worse with every level that he goes down to. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. when he walks in the door, it's awful. When he goes downstairs, it's even more terrifying. When he goes into the studio, it is just beyond description. Because this studio, right, this this hidden studio in the north end of Boston, is he actually rents it under a different name. Mm-hmm. It is a secret studio. And he chose this because he knows the history of the area and knows that there was lots of terrible and occult and horrible things that happened in these connecting tunnels beneath the city in that area. And that there's these awful wells that go down to who knows what. And there's just... There's allusions to it being a kind of supernatural and horrible place where almost a, a window again, a portal to something horrible, a place, a plane beyond this that is terrifying. And there's awful creatures spilling out of it, which is inspiring to him because he likes to draw the grotesque. Exactly. And I mean, it references uh, the difference between ghost and, and demonic presences in, in the story, doesn't it? Yep. Because um, he talks about haunted houses. And he talks about how there's things that are on the surface level that, you know, they're paranormal, but he could show you things that are far worse. And that leads into where they take the narrator in the story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and so it's really just this really, really horrifying journey as he goes deep, deep to the, to the place where bad things come from. Yeah. Like you wonder at one point he realizes, oh, no, I'm in way over my head. here. Well, and what's interesting about the story is that the narrator is describing his adventure with or his his journey with Pikmin after it happened. So, you know, mm-hmm. he's safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, maybe not his mind, but he doesn't die. He doesn't pass on. There's no irreparable damage to him physically. 
So you kind of carry that with you as you're going in there. But I almost forgot at times. It's kind of like, oh, God, are they going to die? What's happening here? Yeah, but I mean, it's brilliant in that it gives you, in the beginning, it gives you a little tidbit about the experience so that you know that something's going to happen. Because in the beginning of the story, he says he will not go into basements. He will not go on the subway. He's been traumatized. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. something has happened that's been significant enough that a full-grown man who describes himself as being hard-boiled will not go underground. Go underground. Um, And so it it, kind of plants that seed in the beginning of the story, and then just lets it grow. This is an excellent example of what a weird tale is. Weird tales are not horror. They often get lumped into that category, but that is incorrect. Weird tales are all about building a profound sense of wrongness. That's their job. Not to surprise, not to depict a horrible image, but to to create something that is so much founded in our real world, yet so it's believable. But then the small amount of, of suspension of disbelief that they offer, that they request of us as a reader, lets us go to this place that it's just wrong. There's a funky, creepy, weird wrongness to it. But at the same time, so well-rooted in a world that we're familiar with that it accomplishes this in such a successful way. There's very rarely any kind of a jump scare. There's mm-hmm. very rarely any kind of a, a, a grotesque depiction of something that is... That is what is scary. What's scary is that it's it's almost believable and is just so twisted. It's like a slow creep. I think Pickman's model in particular is a really great example of what Lovecraft is able to do with the words yeah. because everything is so firmly rooted in reality up to a certain point. When you think about it, this is a story about some guy who decides to follow an acquaintance to a bad part of town and you immediately think, oh, this isn't going to be good. And what's really awesome about this story is that it imparts that sense of how do you say it when you go to a movie and you're watching it's oh don't go into that room something's awful gonna happen and it's that slow creep because this is a pretty long i mean it's almost 100 pages of them slowly working their way towards the deep dark basement under his north end studio you know something bad's down there that's where we're headed that's where the cosmic terror is and it's that slow awful knowing that we're we're gonna get there we're gonna see it and it leaves you with that unanswered question in the very beginning of the story, where's Pigman? Because he says, one of the first things he says is, I know you're going to ask me where he's at, and I don't know. Yeah, mm-hmm. disappeared without a trace. I have ideas. I have thoughts. I, I, you know, I dare not say, you know, like in this first couple of bits, he's kind of like he has some assumptions as to where he might be, but he probably would never say. He says he wouldn't even talk to the police about it because he'd be They'd no doubt to go. They would to... want him to take them there. Yeah. And he under no circumstances is willing to do that. It's a really, really solid story model to have that foundation built without even having the audience, I feel like, realize that you're building the foundation yep. um, and then to just build upon it. And I mean, obviously, when when the story progresses, you know that the horror is building, you know that he's going to reach this point that uh, lets the the narrator get to the point where he's telling the story. Mm. Um, but for me, at least, I didn't realize that he was planting those seeds in the beginning. I didn't think about the fact when I was you know, going deeper and deeper into the studio that, oh yeah, the artist is gone. Where, where's the artist? You know, it didn't occur to me afterwards until afterwards that some shit has obviously gone down. Yeah. The whole time I was kind of wondering, are we going to see what happened to the artist in some way? And obviously that's, you know, not the way it goes. They both leave and then just say goodbye. And, and then our narrator's done with Pikmin. But you know, the whole time you're thinking like, are we going to get like a window into what actually happened to him? And that's what he doesn't want to say, but perhaps 
you know, in the retelling of the story, in his memory or his, you know, narration, that perhaps he'll kind of hint at it, and then Kim might describe it in his images of what actually happened to him. But we don't. It's all left to be to just this ambiguous, just creep. It reads as a story being told by a trauma victim. Yeah, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Kim, okay, I'm going to talk about this a lot in the art later on, but there in the story, as well as the art, is an excellent sense of mounting just unnervedness. You know, our narrator is terrified. His hands are shaking. Mm -hmm. He's constantly chain smoking. He's drinking. He's And there's just something about the way that the art looks that matches so well the tone of someone who is just a a wreck and barely holding it together. And like Marcus said, the repetition is Mm. building. He keeps saying, the faces, my God, the faces. Yeah, he's beside himself. He doesn't have any way to describe what he's seen even though he's actually describing it somehow, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like in leaving it open to us, it allows it to be even more terrible than it could ever be if it was even written in word, let alone described in images. So just, yeah, just like I was saying about how they never actually show what's on these canvas and letting Mm -hmm. the imagination make it the most horrifying thing possible. It's the same device as um, never actually explaining what happened to Pikmin because now nobody knows and the mind wanders and thinks of really horrible things that, if he had put a, a concrete answer to that question, might not it be as bad? Well, you know, when we when we read something and we're in the mode of I'm looking to be scared, I want that creeping terror, that cosmic terror, that good weird fiction brings us. Our mind is in that mode of looking for that. And when we are hinted at things, but not shown it, described mm-hmm. it explicitly, but just hinted at it. Mm-hmm. I think that we each sort of have our own version of what we think would be the worst thing. And that's where we go. Because we're already thinking about that. We're already imagining what could be terrible. And when it's left, when, when there's such a beautiful uh, setup painted for us and we're left with just sparse description enough to set our mind on the, on the tracks towards whatever is down there or whatever is the evil, whatever the story may be, I think a lot of the time we're going to come up with something internally that is worse than anything that an artist might show because it would be what they think is the worst. Well, absolutely. It's the way that the human brain works. We're able to adapt to things once we have hard facts about it. If we see something, no matter how horrible it is, we could eventually get used to it. We can be desensitized. It's the not knowing. That's the trick. That's the whole thing about weird fiction. That That sense of wrongness comes from not knowing. Mm-hmm. So it's the fear of the unknown, you know. Mm-hmm. I remember when I was little and had nightmares, and um, one of the devices that I used to use to get over the nightmares was I'd be laying in bed in the dark, and I would think of something that would scare me in these nightmares in a, in a glimpse, and it would be horrifying. But then if I thought about it long enough and hard enough, and I just tried to actually picture it in my head, I closed my eyes and picture whatever it was, whatever witch or demon or werewolf was in my imagination, and kind of zoom in on it. If I thought about it long enough, it became less scary mm-hmm. because, you know, you you can put form to it and then you can start, you know, breaking it down. It's like dragging the, it's like dragging the fears, you know, out kicking and screaming into the light. Exactly. You know? It's like exactly. no matter how horrible something is, it's not so terrifying when it's in the daylight, mm-hmm. you know, and, and in many ways, what could be terrifying might look just ridiculous. Yeah. You know, it's the domain of, of, of darkness where those things belong. I remember, Admin, you posted something like a video explaining what the creeps were mm. a while back. And that this is exactly oh, it. Perfection. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. If we can find that link again, we should put that in the show notes. Yes, we should put that in the show notes. Have is to that, help that, me find that. Yeah, yeah. We'll be good. That was good stuff. Saying exactly what we're saying right now, that it's the not knowing that makes it the most terrifying. Well, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm so drawn to weird fiction. After the Admin introduced me to the HP Podcraft podcast. Where 
as I'm listening to the story, as I'm, you know, reading the, the books and his short stories and everything, there's a distinct feeling that comes over you. That sense of wrongness that creeps, that he's able to conjure up with such efficiency and effectiveness every time. And it's something that you come to crave, that you look for, and that you want. And that's so well achieved here. It's just a great, it's a great story. Well, okay, enough gushing about Lovecraft. Why don't we go ahead and take one more quick musical break. When we get back, we'll dig into the art, which is excellent, of this wonderful adaptation of Pickman's Model by Kim Holm. You're listening to Geek Life. Stick with us. about H.P. Lovecraft really makes me regret the fact that I hate reading words with my eyes. Do you guys have any good recommendations for how I can get around that? Mm, well, as a matter of fact, the Geek Life podcast is sponsored by Audible. You can go to audibletrial.com forward slash geek life and get your free audiobook download and a one month 30% off of their entire catalog of over 150. That's right. They've expanded it. Thousand different books. It is a great service and many, if not all, the people sitting in this room use it. Uh, it's just wonderful. And... We have a little recommendation for you guys today. Recently, I listened to Heart-Shaped Box by Joe Hill. Comic book fans will recognize Joe Hill from The Cape and more spectacularly from Lock and Key. Joe Hill is absolutely masterful. I came across him. Actually, The Cape was probably one of the first comics that I ended up picking up when 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 our Joe brought us into the comic shop. Just because it was going to be a short run and Mm -hmm. the art really stuck out to me. But I, I actually really was blown away. And then you later on, they did it. Mm-hmm. And then later on, they did an extension of it that basically did a little bit of a backstory for that. And the so cape then, 1969. Right. That wasn't a cape that's attached to like the TV show, The Cape, was it? No, yeah. not at all. Okay. <laughs> no, not at all. It's really good. You should check it out. So then, you know, after that, Joe Hill sort of was on my radar as a writer and have since read through some of his things and was going through Lock and Key recently, which is phenomenal. And this is not a, well, I guess that's kind of an indie comic, but not a really, really self published indie comic. So um, we'll leave that to the domain of our sister podcast, the Four Jays and a Comic Podcast, which we'll get to at some point, which you can find on waterfrontcomics.com. But anyway, suffice it to say, Lock and Key is worth your attention. Anyway, back to the book, Joe Hill, awesome writer. I'm talking to John Harder of Waterfront Comics, and he recommends, hey, you should read some of his writing, some of his prose, and and his his book, Heart Shape Box, is a good place to start. Sure enough, it was very good. And the best way to describe this is imagine if Ozzy Osbourne wasn't quite as wacky. 
like wasn't quite as like space cadet-y, was a little bit more with it as the main protagonist, but basically someone who's that kind of a person, somebody who has is sort of on the other side of a very successful, like, you know, sort of like dark occult type metal career, right? And he has sort of a curio collection. And if you're not familiar with that term, it's basically like an odd sort of weird artifacts and creepy things and, you know, the sort of stuff that you would see in maybe like an occult sort of shop. Mm-hmm. And he ends up purchasing this suit from this old man that is supposedly the supposedly his ghost comes with, right? So basically he buys this ghost online. And <laughs> yeah, right. you uh, really can find everything on the internet. You can't. And so sure enough, this package comes and it's this dark wooden heart-shaped box and in it is this sort of old Johnny Cash-like suit. And sure enough, some strange things start happening. As the plot develops, it ends up that he is under dire like physical and bodily harm potential with this ghost and that there's a lot more going on and why the ghost wants to come after him. And I don't want to give away all that, but suffice it to say it's one hell of a ride, no pun intended, and is way worth your attention. So I would way highly recommend checking out the heart shaped box or heart shaped box by Joe Hill narrated by Stephen Lang. You can get that on audible. And if you would like, you can get it for free. If you go to audibletrial.com forward slash geek life, and it's a heart shape box is a really good place to start. So we highly recommend you guys check that out. There'll be a link in the show notes to go straight to our little connection page, our affiliate page with those guys and help us out a little bit and check out a really good book. Anyway, back to the story at hand. We were talking about Pikmin's model by HP Lovecraft adapted by Kim Holm. We've talked a lot about the story and a lot about HP Lovecraft, but let's talk specifically about Kim's art because it is I think, worthy of a great deal of conversation. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I have like 11 notes, 12 notes for this, like a lot, a bunch. And they're like all big. (laughs) So why don't we start with someone else, though? I've done a lot of talking. You're probably sick and tired of JP's voice right now. Never. How sexy. Well, what I liked about it was that it was repetitious of um, the storytelling type. I mentioned when we're talking about story, the fact that the repetition really draws the, the audience in. And the artwork does the same thing where... My God, Kim, how many different ways can you draw a guy smoking a cigarette close up? Like, that was amazing to me. He has the same it shot it, it of felt the narrator yeah. a thousand times. And it's in the same four-panel page exactly, over and over again. They're not a bunch of interesting and unique dynamic layouts. It has that monotony, that repetition, like the book, on purpose. It's not any kind of a lack of creativity on Kim's side because later on in other parts where he's not showing the narrator talking to his friend and recounting the story... Man, oh man, are there some unbelievable pages, splash pages, oh, interesting man. ways to, oh God. But you're right. There is that excellent use of that repetition, even in the frame style. Another thing that he echoed from the from the writing style was the fact that as you go deeper and deeper into the story, it gets more intense and more intense, and you can feel the stress weighing down on you mm. as the reader by how heavy the inks get and how crazy and wild all the, the splashes get. And mm-hmm. um, it uh, it gets kind of relentless to the point where I almost started reading it faster because it was like it was like yeah. a roller coaster that was like okay now we're going down and we're going fast right and stuff's getting intense and hold on because holy shit well let's take a minute and talk about what the art actually looks like so the art is is immediately striking with a palette of black white and gray with really no gradation uh, it's an incredibly sharp work with touches of paint here and there ink splatters paint splatters things like that it gives it a more organic feel it doesn't feel too clean. It has a definitely a, a traditional sort of analog media look. It's mm-hmm. definitely, you know, whether or not it was done on the computer or not, which I don't really think it was. I think it was colored on the computer. Could be, but what I'm saying is, is that it doesn't have that too perfect look to yeah. it, right? 
Um, something that immediately jumped out to me because Marcus and I have a long love affair with rich inks and thick, dark black lines and line variants is that the, the lines, although they do have varying thickness, they're just, they're sharp and they're hard. And, and instead of that sort of soothing, smooth, inky, rich feel that you often see with really good inks and comic books, Kim has gone for a more kind of frantic sharpness. And the lines, they're almost like a scratch board sort of look, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Did you notice that he didn't use uh, digital tools to make his frames either? They're all hand-drawn frames. All hand-drawn. And did you notice that the more that our narrator was starting to get upset, the more wiggly the frames were? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Everything has this sense of just this, this haggard, tense protagonist coming through. And all of this adds to that sense of unease that the protagonist has, you know, this look makes the haggard and tense protagonist just come through very visually, his fear and his nervousness, it comes through. And even in, in the hand-drawn frames, the kind of unevenness that, you know, I would often say adds a sort of charm to it. It adds a tension. Yeah. It makes you kind of like nervous. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, everything is drawn. It's drawn in, in an almost unsteady hand, but totally on purpose. Mm-hmm. And it adds right away the sense of just sort of Unease and it uncomfort looks like and just breaking down, mm. and it reflects the mental state of the protagonist, yeah. or not the protagonist of the narrator. narrator. Since you brought up color, uh, one thing that really was extraordinarily striking to me was the fact that even though there were three colors, black, white, and gray, there was such a mastery in using the colors to tell the story. So we start off, and the first several pages is just our na- narrator talking, and it's primarily white. That's the background. Our character is white with black lines. But the first moment that you see Pikmin, it's well, inverted. Our character is black, white, and gray. Right. But the background, you see the the white in the background. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. He's lying. It's drawn. almost as if it's like a bright light shining right. at him or something. But when you see Pikmin, it's there's reversed. no outlines, none. And, like and the he's Pikmin just looks like a scratchboard. It exactly looks like he's like stepped out of the shadows. Like he yeah. is the personification of darkness. And it's so striking when you make that first switch from seeing our narrator to seeing Pikmin. It's yeah. like, whoa, what's happened here? White with black lines to black with white lines. Mm-hmm. No, I, that actually, there is one thing that got me for a second yeah um transitioning from the narrator to pikmin there was a second of confusion Mm. it took me a few panels to realize oh okay now we're in flashback mode where i thought that pikmin was the person he was telling the story to right 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 Mm. yeah um that would be really my only critique on the piece is that um it could be a little more clear that he was going into the flashback. It needed a doodle, doodle. Well, you know, something that you often use to do a flashback, if you see in comics, is very regular that most of the times the panels are surrounded with white. Uh, some people like Marcus like to use black on everything, but most of the time, whatever is normal is switched. And so I would say if Marcus is doing a flashback, probably likely going to make outside of the panels white, or he may choose to do that. It's a visual style in which you can say, boop, this is a different time, a different space. And... Everything was so much white with all, around the panels and everything. It's a lot of white in this comic, a lot of negative space. Not empty negative space, but a lot of negative space, a lot of white. Mm-hmm. And something that I was kind of expecting when we were going to do a flashback is that the outside and around would be like that. It would be all black instead of white. And it wasn't. It was still all white, except the way Pikmin was rendered. Everything is drawn in a little bit of a different style when we're doing the flashback, which is, which is really interesting, but it's more subtle. I mean, not that it's not striking, because it is. The first time you see Pikmin, it's like, oh, wow. But it is similar enough that it's it. Uh, you're right. It, that first transition is a little bit like, oh, okay, that's Pikmin, you know. Yeah. But it, it's not long. It's not enough to really jar you. It's not enough to really ruin the storytelling. But it is. It is a, a small kind of like ah, uh, which yeah. I think just it comes with the way that H.P. Lovecraft writes. 
you know, it does. I mean, this is a, a very challenging thing to adapt. So, I mean, kudos to you, Kim, for even trying and really very much succeeding. But this, you're right, that is a little bit of a rough spot. Like if there was a little bit of diffusion, like the the last panel of the narrator's scene kind of fades out to white and then the like top corner of the big Pikmin splash page kind of fades in from white. Well, the trick is, is that it's, it's, it's an adaptation where it's basically just taking the text from the book. And there's not a lot of like, and now scene change, you know, yeah, it's like, I mean, there's no dialogue that I ever said. Now, let me tell you about this flashback. You know, so <laughs> it immediately it, jumps into Pikmin's dialogue. Exactly. I mean, even the book, it's like that. Hmm. So well, I was going to say, going back to your original thought about the first handful of panels or really anytime we go back to listening to our narrator, the way that Kim renders hands is excellent. You know, they, they're so expressive, you know, always, you know, holding a cigarette and in some panels it's just the hand. But it's always clear what the emotion is. And there's this sense of just kind of constant nervous pawing of his face, touching his ear, touching the table, picking up his drink. His hands are just racing around because he's so uncomfortable all the time. And the hands are such an important piece to that because people that are really nervous are like that. They're fidgety. And Kim did a really great job because the hands never got to where it was like, oh, that looks like some kind of terrible fish monster. You know, like it actually is really well described. And it just, it's very stylized. Almost, you know, square-like fingertips at times, but very expressive, which I thought was really successful. I think Kim did a great job of letting the words tell the story. Totally. Um, mm -hmm. You know, normally I, I, I praise an artist who has the storytelling ability to be that director to sort of yeah. make the, the audience see what they want them to see. But in this case, some of the more powerful pages in this book are the ones that I'm going to remember later on are the ones with almost no artwork on them. Um mm -hmm. The first page where you just see the four the panels trail. with the smoke going through mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. and then a page, so good. A, a full black page later on um, once Pikmin has closed the door and left the narrator and the, the, the lowest You just room. see the seam of the door and then the page after it's just darkness. It's like, oh, what is happening? And I feel like everyone can relate to that. Have you ever been in a situation where you can see perfectly clear and then you close the door and it's pitch black? If you're ever going to be have that fear of the unknown, it's in that moment. Mm -hmm. And it happened to me when I was reading the book. and. Pikmin leaves the room and closes the door behind him and the narrator is just in this pitch black and all you see are the white text of his thoughts and it's just it's a perfect conveyance of what it feels like to be in that situation in that crappy situation well you know talking about the way that Pikmin was rendered you know he himself is is simply breathtaking you know the other character the the protagonist when he's talking I mean even actually in the flashback he's drawn differently again going those through those two different styles one distinctly more comic booky you know with an actual black outline around everything but Pikmin and the flashback was, well, of course, the only time we're going to see Pikmin. You know, it's just the beauty that Kim, you know, uses to describe is practically kind of inhuman bearded grin of Pikmin. It's just enough to give you a shiver. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, at this this point, he just transitions to pretty much just black and white and doesn't use much gray until they get back out into the city. And, mm -hmm. and just wow, the contrast is just used masterfully and to such a fact that all that's drawn is just a shadow. No real outline, no comic book look. It's mm -hmm. it's pure scratchbook, like noir, just majesty. Oh, and the first close up on him too. I love when the, he's smiling, when he's grinning, teeth. and he's talking. Right. Well, no, there's a scene specifically where Ugh. he's he's talking about the the disgusting foreigners, you know, mm -hmm. in these in these unknown sort of backwater streets, and he gets right up close to his face and just the the frazzled, but trim, but like the like the frazzly, unkempt, but trim beard and and those nasty teeth that mm -hmm. that wicked grin is just a powerful thing did you guys notice that pikmin himself is never ever drawn with any gray 
Even if he's in an environment that's rendered with both black, white, and gray, there is never anything but white and black on Pikmin. Nothing. And even his eyes are black. I thought that was even really his nice. eyes. Oh, yeah, yeah, his eyes yeah. have that blackout effect. Speaking of the cityscapes, oh wow, that I was breathtaking. Super yeah, I mean it, it's it's kind of drawn in this sort of like unruled, as in like no rulers, mm-hmm. sort of hand drawn lines. And again, I, you know that sort of has a, a charming look typically, but the way that Kim does this. It carries this sort of unknown menace, you know, and mm-hmm. the the street lamps in particular were one of my favorite, actually light sources of any kind. You know, they're, they're just like these explosions of light, like paint and the lines and splattering and whatnot just sort of cover the intensely detailed surroundings. And it's just as striking, very striking, especially when they're in the basement, right? And they have the lantern. Oh, man. Do you think there was white put on top of black at any totally. point? Totally. Yeah. Lots. Lots. I've been seeing that a lot lately. There's a there's a it's local tr- artist, Noel Serrato, who does a lot of artwork, a lot of fan art of the turtles in particular. Yeah, I saw something he uploaded the other day. It's pretty awesome. And really. he does a lot of like black ink work, and then he'll go back over with whiteout and, and add, splattery. Add, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I was wondering if you thought that might be the technique they're using here. Totally. Or I mean, I don't know. I, I saw one frame where I thought that he had added white to it, and I took a closer look, and it actually kind of looked like he's just that good with black that he makes it look like he had to go back over it with white. I mean, if you, well, you, if know, you know what you're doing and you right. plan ahead. You can get that feeling. I think mostly what I think he went over with, whether it's white on black or black on white, is anything that looks splattery. Because that's not something you can really fake. Exactly. And there's a lot of that in this that looks really good. And it's a technique that you don't see a whole lot, especially in our realm of the independent and the web comics. It's a... That's more of a art, you know, paint type looking technique. Yeah. Although it really, you see a lot more in like Japanese comics. They 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 tend to use that because their tools are more conducive to that. You know, a lot of pen nibs. You can get that sort of sharp, stringy, sort of blood like lines and stuff. But yeah, it's a uh, just really excellent, really excellent. I like the way that the like we were just talking about the scenery, the page where they're on the L train, which was beautifully rendered, beautiful, like, like down to each individual bolt on the paneling. <laughs> That's awesome. That was great. But each page got darker and darker the further they got in to this, mm-hmm. you know, creepy part of town. And the buildings got less and less defined and the shadows started creeping in more and more. It was very telling. Well, the scenes where Pikmin and our narrator are walking into Pikmin's secret studio, the, the comic, it slowly loses that comic-like confines of clarity. And it begins to sort of slip into this, like, almost impressionistic, emotive explanation sort of like the way the city's done but the way that the two men are journeying through the city and it's just you know it's it's like as they near this evil place that pikmin enjoys his most just horrible inspiration you know, the like the very world around them gets darker and more abstract and their their anatomy starts to stretch and elongate in this sort of awful wicked way um it was really interesting i like that uh when okay so in the story you don't know what happens to pikmin obviously mm-hmm. um and it could be that he was taken by something evil, killed by something womp, evil, womp, womp. was something evil. We get a sense that he has some kind of an encounter with something evil when they're both down there. Exactly. Yeah. Closes the door and goes around with a sharpshooter. And you d- described is wood striking metal or striking, sorry, wood striking, striking stone, stone yeah. which is exactly what that ancient the well, well yeah. in the basement is. It's a wood cover, heavy, big wood cover on a stone, you know, a couple, maybe like three or four cobbles high. And you get the sense that something comes up from the muck and attacks mm-hmm. him and he shoots it. Exactly. Well, I like the fact that uh, Pikmin himself has, starts to sort of change. His fingers get pointed in the later later scenes in the it's book. It's like elongated or something. Yeah, his, his features start to get more creepy. It was really, really uh, interesting play on, on the story in that you never really knew if 
he was this evil thing that he saw or right. something else and it, you know kind of you find you out you get to find out you definitely do yeah which we won't give that away because that that almost every good weird tale has a kind of bum 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 sort of moment which if not handled masterfully which it is here but if not handled well can be super cheesy you gotta love though that when pikmin comes back from that he's like man those damn rats right yeah. <laughs> like he was trying to lamely like, like, cover it over rats, yeah. stupid rats and God knows what they eat down here. <laughs> <Is> what, really? <laughs> yeah, no shit, right? Well, I want to see the rat that could... Or I guess I would never want to see the rat that could lift up that, that and, freaking giant... And take six bullets out <laughs> of a 37 man. Yeah. Finally, my last thought I would say is, is, did you notice that after they both get to the studio and it switches to the narrator back again to the narrator smoking and drinking and telling his story that instead of the panels surrounding him being white now they're black mm. and you know it, it, i guess it kind of continued this sinking feeling that we had but still allowed our narrator to sort of step in and converse with his unseen friend but then later even after this as cuz they kind of go back and forth between the flashback and the narration and, and, you know, you know, sitting at the cafe, which but, is a great device in its own in that, like, it gets creepy, creepy, creepy. And then it lets you feel safe for a second. And you're like, oh, which I thought was interesting with the black or on the outside because it's it it's the same, but it's darker now. Yeah. Right. But then when things are getting to this fevered pitch, just like you were saying, when they go back to our narr narrator talking at the cafe, it goes back to white again mm -hmm. instead of black, which I was expecting it to continue to stay black. But it's almost like it's almost like Kim was like, and eh, I'm going to give you a little breather here because shit's mm -hmm. getting serious <laughs> <laughs> and you then know? push you back into the pool and then push you back into the darkness. <laughs> uh, any final thoughts about the art? You know, there's one thing that I wish would have been there because mm. I know. A lot of the suspense was built up around not being able to see Pikmin's art. Right. If there was, like, a hint to it, like the scene where they're in his shadowy gallery and he turns on the lights, if you could see, like, maybe the corner of a painting or the glare of a couple of eyes on Which he could have done. He could have at least done some of the Just alluded because, to it, right, yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, didn't have to show, you know, the, like, the undescribable horror or whatever yeah. right yeah. it would have lent it a little bit better i think just to give you the sense that it's like this is how intense it is yeah. that the light is actually burning off of it yeah i did like how when the most horrible thing was shown that we got to see a great stretched out nasty weird abstract version of the narrator and his face and just <gasps> you mm -hmm. know the zoom in on his eye and just the awfulness of it, it was really cool so, um, all right. Well, thank you guys for listening. Let's go ahead and give you some links so you can check out Kim's work. You can like his Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Duhfans, D-U-H-H fans. You can go and actually read this comic we were talking about today at freecomics.no, which you can read this for free and then see some of his other works as well. And then finally, you can purchase this book in print on Indie Planet as well as digital go ahead and just search for pikmin's model by kim holm on indie planet but we will of course also put a link into the show notes there's no unfortunately clean link straight to anything on indie planet so yeah i think thank you guys for listening this was uh this was a really interesting book i'm so glad we got the admin back on for us and share oh, some of fun. her hp geekery so and don't forget check out hp podcraft it is easily one of my favorite podcasts so it's a really really good one we always love to hear from our listeners. Please email us at geeklife at pandamanga.com with your questions, comments, and insights. Anyone interested in becoming a PM contributor, visit our contact page at contact.pandamanga.com and complete the form located there. 
Music has been provided by AirPlus Recordings. Links to the artists and songs featured on this episode are available in the show notes at podcast.pandamanga.com. If you'd like more information about AirPlus Recordings, visit airplusrecordings.com. This is Joe, and we will see you next time. HP Lovecraft presents Firefly. So I recommend. I would recommend <laughs> nope, like, we're done. <laughs> Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sure, HP sure. Lovecraft presents Alien Requiem. No, really. Mm. HP Lovecraft presents Twilight. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. So does that mean? How does that mean when, when things get to a fevered pitch of obnoxiousness, then Cthulhu just comes out of the sky and eats everybody? That oh, if only. Twist. That would be kind of funny considering the, the whole thing? like wait for sex before marriage thing in that and, and then the Lovecraft rape. is. Well, <laughs> actually, I was gonna go with you know because Lovecraft is uh, was afraid of human contact, so that would have been oh. perfect. But anyway, Lovecraft's an interesting guy.